You're listening to This Old Tree, the show about heritage trees and the human stories behind them. I'm Doug Still. There's no mistaking the original site of the historic Charter Oak in Hartford, Connecticut. Jack Hale from the Hartford Tree Advisory Commission took me and my friend Gene Zimmerman there recently. Okay, Jack, where are we right now? We are at the corner of Charter Oak Avenue and Charter Oak Place, uh, which is the location where the Charter Oak I was planted. Uh, I would guess planted. that. Yeah. <laughs> Funny that they named it that. Yeah, so Down the block is the Charter Oak Cultural Center, the Capital Spirits Charter Oak Liquor Store, and Charter Oak Memorial Park. In fact, there are probably hundreds of businesses across the state with Charter Oak in the name, from a state college to a credit union to a brewery. It's even on the Connecticut state coin. What is this phenomenon? Yeah, so if you look at the wall of that uh, apartment building, there's a plaque there to that effect. The Charter uh, Oak Place Apartments. <laughs> yes. And that's the obelisk? The obelisk is a memorial to the, to the tree, uh, but the, the actual location of the tree is where the apartment building is. I mentioned Jean Zimmerman. She's an arborist and author of seven books who is currently working on a book about America's complicated love affair with our forests. Jean joins me in this episode to help get to the bottom of the Charter Oak legend and how it became part of the founding myth of Connecticut. I'm Doug Still, and you're listening to This Old Tree. This old tree Standing here for more than four centuries Wonder what you'd say if you could talk to me About what it's like to be this old tree First off, I'd like to recognize the land in and around Hartford as once belonging to a confederation of indigenous tribes of the Algonquin people. In fact, the name Connecticut comes from the Algonquin word Connecticut, meaning long tidal river. These peoples included the Podunks, the Poconocs, the Massacos, the Tunches, the Wongunks, and the Sokyogs, where Hartford itself is located. Now, I'd like to welcome Gene Zimmerman to the show. So, hi, Gene. How are you doing today? I'm doing fine, Doug. How are you? I'm doing great. I'm doing great. We met about six weeks ago um, when you submitted a tree story short to That's the right. program. Uh-huh. Absolutely. It was a great one. It was on a beech tree that you grew up with. A copper beech tree called the elephant tree. That was a great story. I loved it. Thank you. And then afterwards, we started chatting about historic trees, and somehow we got on to talking about the Charter Oak in Connecticut. Right. Well, the Charter Oak is a famous tree for Connecticut people, but also for other people, I think. Yeah, neither of us are from Connecticut. I'm from Rhode Island. And I'm from just north of New York City. I remember neither of us really got why this tree was so important to Connecticuters. Right. So I guess we wanted to know more and we thought we would pursue it. And we did some quick searches, of course, on the Internet. And we found a basic outline of the story of the Charter Oak. Yeah, there's this, there's like a general narrative out there that you read over and over. There's a general narrative and some people in Connecticut know some of it and some know some other part. It's kind of interesting, though, the background. Yeah, maybe you could give us an outline of the story. 
Absolutely. So it was in the 1660s, uh, pre-revolution uh, in Connecticut, in, in what was to become Connecticut. And the, the charter for the colony of Connecticut was uh, given by the King of England. And uh, so the colony was relatively self-governing. But along about uh, 1687, the new king decided that the number of colonies should be merged into one larger colony. Right. And so he wanted to revoke Connecticut's charter. So he sent a henchman to Hartford to come take it back. Oh, boy. So then this leads to the big legend. So on October 31st, 1687, there was a meeting with state dignitaries in a tavern, a local tavern in Hartford. And the charter was sitting on a table between all of the the players here. So at one point, amazingly, all the candles blew out at the same time. That's miraculous. Right. It was miraculous. And when they were relit, the charter was gone. So who knows where it went? Well, apparently it later came out that it had been whisked out of the room by somebody and brought to an old white oak tree that grew nearby. So this is the tree that became known as the charter oak because the charter was hidden inside a big hollow in the trunk. Well, what happened next is the king's men couldn't retrieve the charter. They couldn't find it. They didn't know where it was. And voila, Connecticut's rights were saved. And that's the story. Yeah, I think that's what most people know. Like if you were to ask somebody in Connecticut, you know, that's what they would describe or something along those lines. Right. They might not know the name of the king or they might not know the name of the land it was on. But they do know something about the charter being rescued. It's amazing that this story has been passed down for hundreds of years. What do you think its power is? Or, you know, uh, we, we had no idea not being from Connecticut. I don't know. I mean, I think it's it's good to ask why there's such veneration for this particular tree and why is there even this sort of mysticism uh, surrounding it? I'd love to find out more. Yeah, why this tree? And do people still care? Absolutely. And it sounds as though they do, but I'd just like to get down and find out more about it. Well, we both had the chance to interview some wonderful people to find out some of these questions. And we got to meet each other in Hartford. How fun was that? That was really fun. And it was a great day. Well, to start things off, I met separately with Robert Storm to get the best description of the actual events that I could find. And he is a lawyer and an historian who also holds the title Honorary Governor General of the Society of Colonial Wars of the State of Connecticut. Do you have any idea what that means? It sounds important, but no. (laughs) Well, I didn't either, but uh, let's find out. Hi, Rob. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Doug. What is the Society of Colonial Wars and how does one get to be a member? Ah, interesting questions, both of them. The Society was founded in the early 1890s in New York and in 1893 founded in Connecticut. It's comprised of men who are descended from men who fought in a colonial war, that is, anything between 1607 and April 19th, 1775, 
when the revolution broke out. Or they have an ancestor who was distinguished in the civil life of the particular colony through which they are claiming membership. So like a, a governor or a town selectman or something? Uh, yes, governor, member of the colonial legislature, perhaps a judge. Rob described a couple of his ancestors who fit this description, and then went on to say that there's a parallel organization for women called the Daughters of Colonial Wars. What kinds of things do you talk about at the meetings? Those topics are wide and varied, and that's one of the chief pleasures of belonging to the Society of Colonial Wars. Are they top secret? Ah, oh, of course, <laughs> never to leave the table. You know, we talk about everything from politics to visual aesthetics to uh, the latest romance of one of the members. But for the most part, it's a society that has an intense history and an intense interest in history. Has the Charter Oak ever come up? On rare occasion, but early in the last century, it was a primary focus of the group. In fact, the monument that was originally placed at the site of the Charter Oak itself, which blew down in a horrendous storm back in the summer of 1856, that was remembered by the society early after its establishment. And we put up a large stone monument on the site of the old Charter Oak in, if I remember correctly, 1910. The obelisk Jean, Jack, and I found earlier. Then I asked Rob to set the stage for our story prior to 1687. What was the Connecticut Charter, and who issued it, and what did it mean for the colony of Connecticut? Connecticut has an extraordinary colonial history. Most of the 13 states, original states, were founded as individual colonies, Connecticut was founded as three separate colonies. And they were Puritans, meaning Protestants who felt that the Church of England hadn't sufficiently reformed and become Protestant enough. In England, King Charles I had been beheaded in 1649 in a civil war. Oliver Cromwell ruled as de facto dictator until he died in 1658, and in 1660, Charles's son, Charles II, became king and restored the monarchy. Parliament decided to invite Charles II, the son of the beheaded, deposed king, to come back to England and rule. He was hiding or he was in Europe, right? He, yes, he was in exile principally at the French court. Charles came back very happily, but the irregular situation in which, heart, in which Connecticut found itself showed the Connecticut colony that theirs was a tenuous position to hold. So they commissioned an agent to seek a charter, a royal charter, of course, at the time there was nothing else, a charter from the king, and he succeeded in getting it in 1662. Did other colonies seek charters as well? For the most part, other colonies already had charters, uh, but Connecticut was an outlier. With its charter, though, it had a legal existence basically as a corporation. And unlike most colonies, the physical location of the charter was here in America, in Hartford. In most colonies, the charter remained in London. So when in 1685, Charles II's successor as king, his brother James II, ascended the throne, 
part of James's attempt to make the colonies more governable was simple. He seized the, the colonies' charters, worked for Massachusetts, for example. They already had them. Exactly. But he didn't have and couldn't get the Connecticut Charter. Mm-hmm. He wanted to make what he called Dominion of New England, which wasn't simply New England, but soon thereafter, also New York. So you had the colonies of New England, Massachusetts, Connecticut, Rhode Island, plus New York, governed as a single entity by a a royally appointed governor. It was Sir Edmund Andrus who caused the most trouble for Connecticut. He was the one appointed as the, the Dominion governor. Exactly. After a very brief period, there was a predecessor who proved unable to to do what James wanted done. So Andros repeatedly asked Connecticut to surrender its charter because under English law at that time, and the same law that had existed by precedent since the Middle Ages, without the physical charter, there was no legal authority. The people of Connecticut were being cagey They did not want to give up their limited democracy, and as devout Puritans, they were very concerned about the religious beliefs of King James. James, however, had converted to Roman Catholicism, the great boogeyman of the Reformation. So the colonists in Connecticut feared, and perhaps with some cause, that surrendering the charter and establishing the New England, the the dominion of New England, would be only the first step of putting in again an ungodly, unbiblical government, not only in the civil sphere, but also in the sphere of faith. So here comes Sir Edmund Andros. But Andros decided he would take action and came down from Boston, the capital of the dominion, and still, of course, as you know, the the leading city of of New England, he came down with a ceremonial guard who, in fact, were really armed soldiers determined to help him take the charter by force if necessary. How many of them were there? We don't really know, but some people have guessed about 30. Significant. Connecticut had no standing army. It had a ready militia in forms of what were called trained bands. But these were men who had to be called up for service. And to have done that, to have opposed the unexpected ceremonial guard would have been a way of probably inciting a rebellion, if if not a riot. We're going to take a brief pause. When we come back, Rob Storm tells us what happened when Sir Edmund Andros arrived in Hartford with one major goal, to confiscate Connecticut's charter. You're listening to This Old Tree. He arrived late in in August of 1687, ostensibly to to visit the government in session, the General Assembly uh, of Connecticut. But clearly everyone knew he was going to ask for the charter. And he did demand it. Well, you know, we need to get it. We need to find it. We need to 
So it was the actual surrender was delayed until evening. Where are they meeting? That's a good question. Nobody knows for sure, but the legend usually has them in Stannard's Tavern, which is was um, about the place that the old state house stands now. So a good three or four blocks away from the location of the Charter Oak. So they met in a tavern. That's what we think. That it was upstairs in the tavern. Now it's nightfall. Necessary to light the candles. The the box containing the charter, probably a long box square uh, at the ends. That's put in the middle of the table with the assemblyman on one side and Andros and his retinue on the other side. And they're discussing in order to make sure that certain questions are answered, that everything's done in good form, that everything happens just as it should. And the assembly comes to the point of almost agreeing with everything that Sir Edmund had said that he wanted. It remains only for him to physically take possession of the charter. So it's looking like they're going to capitulate. Indeed, indeed. But then suddenly, and the legend handed down in my family, uh, some of my mother's ancestors were assemblymen at the time, is that the window was opened and a sudden gust of air came in from the night sky. All the candles are extinguished. Well, they're quickly relit. It couldn't have taken more than a minute or two to have done that. But the table has nothing on it, except the candles. The box containing the charter has disappeared. Now, who took it? We don't really know. But the Wadsworth family has a constant legend that their ancestor, Captain Joseph, was the one who had taken it away in that very brief period in which everything was extinguished. I see. So, I mean, whenever I read about the legend, Joseph Wadsworth whisked away the charter. But you're saying that it started probably with the Wadsworth family and their oral history. Well, that's probably the case, but we don't really know. And Captain Joseph is as good a possibility as any other. We do know that the governor and the deputy governor were still there at the table. We do know that some of the assemblymen still were there, but um, Captain Joseph might not have been the only one who was absent when the lights were relit. In addition to being from a prominent Hartford family, Rob explained that Wadsworth was also a militia leader. And Captain Joseph had his military title from being active in the train band of Hartford. So he was the captain of a train band. Exactly. The militia company of Hartford. While at the Connecticut State Library, I did a little research on Joseph Wadsworth. One source was a Wadsworth family history from the 19th century, which gave him this description. Joseph was an impetuous, aggressive, courageous, and resolute young man and an early leader among the younger set of Hartford. He sounded like a tough guy, so I had to ask, was he there to show some force for the Connecticut side? And were they present or nearby during this night? I I doubt sincerely that the, the militia were out at the time, but, and they were not uniformed, so... There wouldn't have been any clear distinction for him to have had, but um, everyone 
on the Connecticut side would have known that he was captain in the trained man. Was he present in the room during most of the discussions? Well, again, that's what the the legend says. Um, would his presence have been seen as a threat to Sir Andros? Probably not. Uh, again, although the guards accompany Sir Edmund were uniformed, uh, the the trained bands of Connecticut did not have uniforms, so they would have not would not have known who he was. But he would have been somebody who had the courage. Exactly. Now it's it's commonly believed that all of this was engineered in advance, that everyone knew that the candles would be extinguished. Who came up with the idea? I don't know. But it would have been Wadsworth or somebody like him who would have taken it out, probably a good sprinter, if nothing else. And so what happened then when he left the building? He ran, again, the legend, he ran with the box under his arm, I, I don't doubt, to the Willis estate. And that was what had been the farm of, um, or was still the farm of Samuel Willis, uh, again, just a few blocks away. Harford at this time was still a small town with home lots for about only a few hundred people. The home lot was sufficiently big, two, three, four acres, that uh, much of it retained a rural character, including this tree, which had been held as as quasi-sacred by the Indians who had sold the land to the settlers two generations earlier. Why was Why do you think it was quasi-sacred? Uh, again, this is a legend that's come down in the Willis line, and it might not be entirely accurate. But uh, most family legends in, in New England, I dare say, are based on truth. The, the legend is that the Indians sometime after the sale of the land came back to visit. And of course, the, the, the settlers allowed them to visit. There was no problem with that. That some of them then told Samuel Willis that this tree had been planted at the time that the tribe had originally entered what now is Connecticut, which would have been probably 300 years, 400 years before the sale of the property in, six, in the 1630s. So that the tree marked a peace between tribes. It also was uh, a marker for them of the settlement by the Indians of Connecticut. And last of all, it continued to be a guide to them for when they should plant corn. The story is that when the leaves budded and reached the size of a mouse's ear, which would be roughly the size of your little fingernail, that was the time to plant corn. That's interesting that within their oral history, the tree was planted. It wasn't just a remnant tree. The, the Willis family and its descendants Descendants continued for some time to call it the Peace Oak, or so again the family story goes. But it did get the new name not long after the encounter with Sir Edmund Andrus. So that tree already had an aura around it of history and importance. It did. And it was quite old and had a big hollow, obviously. Exactly. It had already begun to to rot, I'm afraid. And the charter was in a box, so it had to have a cavity. The side, I mean, it must be three feet long, 
and they'd put it in a tree in case one of their homes, you know, if they put it in a home, their home could have been searched. Exactly. Exactly. Who was Samuel Willis? Why was he important? Well, he was one of the leading members of the of the colony. His father had been governor. He was, by colonial standards, well-to-do. Uh, the the home lot was substantial. The house was substantial. And, and the farm appar- apparently was a very productive farm. And clearly it, w- it was on a hill I visited, which probably had quite a view. Oh, yes. And that... I think probably was another reason for choosing the Charter Oak. First, it had a hollow. Second, it was far enough away from the tavern that it would not be under immediate suspicion. And thirdly, the house probably had windows on each side. So any attempt of anyone to come up to the house would have been seen with enough time to be able to make sure that the Charter itself was safe. What are the earliest records? of this incident. I did, in my research, I found a history of Connecticut by Trumbull. That was written in 1815, where this this story, this legend was recorded. But what are the earliest records that you know of? I've not seen what I'm about to mention, but I have on good authority um, from a cousin who died at the, the age of 101 with her memory fully intact, that there were family letters within months of the incident, not detailing it, but saying something to the effect of Sir Edmund had come down with his armed guard from Boston, demanded surrender of the charter, but the charter was spirited away right before his eyes. Well, we know that that couldn't have occurred unless it were dark. So the extinction of the candles makes sense in that regard. Apparently, in the early 1700s, once pretty common knowledge also that uh, that the incident had occurred. So these letters may still exist in some in someone's private collection. They may well, I, and I hope sincerely that they do. Uh, my cousin Alice, my grandfather's cousin, who told me this, was speaking in the 1960s. And at that time, she was speaking as though the letters were definitely still existing. Well, if anyone finds them, we'd love to know. (laughs) And so would the Museum of Connecticut History. Rob described one descendant of Joseph Wadsworth within his society who passed away in 2020, Frank Wadsworth. I asked if there are any descendants of Samuel Willis. There are. Um, I'm not the only one. You're one of them. I am, uh, through my mother's side. The family itself, sadly... Uh, no longer exists with the name of Willis. Now, my fifth great-grandmother was Phoebe Wade of the Wade family. They lived in Lyme, Connecticut. It's a good Connecticut name. Yeah. And its its ancestry definitely goes back into the colonial period. So if an armed guard shows up on your doorstep (laughs) sometime and says, you must join the Society of Colonial Wars, you know why. So I can join, right? You can Well, from an historical perspective, it was looking more and more like the legend was real, or mostly so. But Jean and I wanted to see what parts of the legacy can still be found. So we met in Hartford on a mild December afternoon. We started at the Connecticut State Library, an impressive, echoey building located across the street from the state capitol. It houses the State Library, the Connecticut Supreme Court, and the Museum of Connecticut History. 
It was the museum we wanted to see, because we learned that it holds the renowned charter that Joseph Wadsworth hid back in 1687. Wow. wow. This place is incredible, and there's nobody here. And the floors are gleaming. Somebody takes very good care of this place. And we're surrounded by portraits of men. I <laughs> yes. don't know who these men are. All I assume white they, men. All white men, and many of them in the Napoleonic pose with their hand in their coat. <laughs> yes. I'm assuming the that patriarchy. These, the patriarchy. And I'm <laughs> assuming that these people are all perhaps past governors of the state? I'm not sure. It appears to be. <laughs> but I was told that the charter is on the far wall. Let's t okay. take a look. Sounds good. That, You're I You're standing on it. Sorry, Doug. You're standing on the charter oak right now. <laughs> Do you see? I wish we yes. could show a picture of this. Well, I'll take a picture. It's, it's inlaid um, brickwork with the oak, the charter oak. Mm -hmm. And then straight ahead is the royal charter of 1662. Mm-hmm. And it's in a wooden frame, and, and it says, only the crest of the frame is thought to be of charter oak wood. What's beautiful about it is that it's a kind of meta statement because it's carved of the charter oak wood, and it is also <laughs> a, a sculpture of the charter oak leaves and acorns. That's right, it's quite lovely actually. Um, it, then it says, in 1893, the framed charter was moved to the state li library where we stand, which occupied what is now the state senate chamber in the capitol. Apparently, um, John Kinney, an editor of the Hartford Current and a collector of historical relics, purchased the original frame and apparently had many smaller frames veneered with charter oak wood made from it. Okay. Well, that, that just seems wrong to me. I'm sorry. <laughs> Do you don't think that seems possible? How many, frames possible. Could, how many frames could be made? I don't know, but I bet we'll find some around the state. Also, if you look above this particular framed um, charter, you'll see another portrait of the charter oak on the wall. Yes. You want to read what it says about it? Sure. It says... Um, Okay, so 1856, Charles DeWolf Brownell. Um, in 1856, he executed the painting of the Charter Oak, which hangs above the Charter Vault, done from an 1855 pencil sketch. The painting hung for many years in the office of the president of the Charter Oak Bank. So it says the artist, Brownell, chose to depict the tree with, as he said, its remarkable branching, which extended south toward the Connecticut River. The Brownell view was later used on the postage stamp and half dollar commemorating Connecticut's tercentenary in 1935. Right. Doug, I'd love to know your idea as an arborist about the branching aspect of this tree. Okay. Is it extraordinary? It seems to be very asymmetrical which I think that you would find that in a very old tree, and it extends away from the fence line. Mm -hmm. It's a fence line. I saw another etching of this from the other side, which would be interesting to compare. Mm -hmm. um, so it extends over, it looks like Samuel Willis's land, and then there's some dieback. Some, yeah, I see the dead wood. Um, and I see the branches kind of curving and moving, and um, I've seen some... 400-year-old white oaks, and that's what they do. Uh -huh. So I think it's pretty realistic, actually. And it says, so the tree fell in 1856, 
and it says this was taken from a pencil drawing from 1855. So it most likely is pretty spot on. Then we moved on to the relics of the Charter Oak and the memorabilia. There was a lot of it. So we're looking at a display case full of um, the names of Charter Oak businesses and old photographs over the years. And what I said is there's no, nothing so low to have the Charter Oak name, <laughs> nothing so low or so high. It goes everything from Charter Oak Venetian blinds to the Charter Oak first prize risen, r ribbon for poultry, 1921 at the State Fair. Yes, Charter Oak um, Coffee Roasting Company. Charter Oak Trucking Company. Soon we learned about another important piece of Hartford history that Samuel Colt, the firearms manufacturer, was a prominent figure at the same time the Charter Oak was lost in the 1856 storm. There's an entire room dedicated to Colt in the Connecticut State Museum. Their histories are intertwined. This is one I've actually really wanted to see, which is the Colt revolver. That's a famous one. It's made out of wood. Yeah, there's a whole room of, of Colt firearms. Oh, okay, and all made from the wood, though. I mean, this oh, one is no. this one is carved from Charter Oak wood. It's a it's a wood revolver, which um, I guess makes sense. I, I don't think I've ever that, seen a wood revolver before. That is a blending of Connecticut history, right there. <laughs> Colt and Charter Oak. Uh, and another cool find. So here is a photograph of the Charter Oak. Incredible. I didn't realize that there was a photograph of it. And this is, it. we don't have a date on this photo, but it also is framed in wood from the Charter Oak. So again, it's meta upon meta. We can see um, an iron fence around it and the city growing around it that I can see. We were just getting started. Jack Hale, who you met briefly at the beginning of this episode, was kind enough to show us other Charter Oak sites in Hartford, and we learned so much from him. Okay, could you just uh, maybe say your name, just so I have it? I'm Jack Hale. It. Jack Hale. H-A-L-E. Thanks. Uh, you've agreed to show us around Hartford a little bit and find, dig up some Charter Oak history and paintings and relics. Um, yes. Where are we right now? We're in the Wadsworth Athenaeum Museum of Art. I knew that because I walked in and just bought a ticket. <laughs> <laughs> just so did I get it right? <laughs> yeah, that's right. So, and what are you going to show us here? We're going to show you uh, a couple of things that were made out of the wood of the Charter Oak after it fell, and uh, also a painting of the Charter Oak. He first told us a little bit of what happened after the tree fell in 1856. What they, happened? Yeah, I mean, they, <laughs> they were crushed, I guess. Oh, yeah, it was, it was a tragedy. It was a tragedy. Our, it was in the newspaper. <laughs> well, they, they actually held a funeral mm -hmm. for the tree. And Sam Colt... <clears throat> who by that time had made his way as a uh, gun manufacturer, uh, was obsessed with the tree. And so he did everything he could to get as much of the wood from the tree as he could possibly get. And who's Sam Colt? Sam Colt invented the revolver. Uh-huh. And uh, uh, he was an international arms dealer. Yeah, and he was right based right here in Hartford. Right here, yes. 
So we actually saw one of those wood revolvers that he made in the State Library Museum yeah. just now. Uh -huh. Yeah, you can see evidence over there. So he was important enough by that time that what he said sort of went in terms of, I'm going to collect all of this wood from the tree. Well, I don't know that influence was what was involved there. He was just one hustler. Of the guy. <laughs> okay. He, if he decided he want, wanted something, he went after it. <laughs> he was a businessman and a hustler, an entrepreneur. Mm -hmm. Then we went upstairs. Okay, what are we standing in front of, Jack? This is a famous painting of the Charter Oak. Uh, you can see, well, it says here it was painted 1857, which was right after it fell, uh, by Charles DeWolf Brownell. Uh, it shows, we were talking about Colt. Here's the top of the Colt armory right here. Jack pointed at the painting and a guard came up. Sorry, we can just... Yeah, don't... Oh, sorry. Sorry, cut that on. Don't touch the painting. <laughs> <laughs> and the, the frame... It's a gorgeous frame, and the painting is lovely. But you know, one, one thing again that I love about this is when something is made from the oak, and it depicts the oak, like the frame here. Again, we have carvings of the oak branches and leaves. Yeah. And I think that's particularly beautiful. There is another painting, which is uh, perhaps even more uh, historic than this one, that was done by uh, Church, Frederick Edwin Church. Oh. It's at the Griswold Museum. What else do you have That's to show us? That's the tree. Us? Let's walk, walk around the corner a little bit. Okay. Oh, my goodness. Now, this this chair, I mean, you can read the, the label on there, but this wow. chair was uh, made for the Hartford City Council. They commissioned it, but they didn't want to pay the bill. And so Sam Colt bought it, and it came here as part of the, the collection that was left to the Athenaeum when Elizabeth died. So this was, it says, according to um, the description on the wall, this was actually carved in the same year the tree fell. This was 1857. Yeah. And there's a small painting right next to it that's lovely by George Francis called Charter Oak and Willis House. And this says circa 1858, so it would have been two years after the tree was gone by then. Yeah. However, Willis was an earlier resident. It says here that he actually died in about 1645. And at the time of the oak, uh, when all of the stuff transpired about the oak, it was owned by someone named William Stewart. Ah, very good. Mm -hmm. And it says that William Stewart when allegedly had thousands of objects carved from its branches, from yeah. thimble cases to pianos. We were far from the first tourists to take in all that is the Charter Oak. Here's Mark Twain from 1868 after a trip to Hartford. Anything that is made of its wood is deeply venerated by the inhabitants and is regarded as very precious. I went all about the town with the citizen whose ancestors came over with the pilgrims in the Quaker City, in the Mayflower, I should say, and he showed me all the historic relics of Hartford. He showed me a beautiful carved chair in the Senate chamber where the bewigged and awfully homely old-time governors of the Commonwealth frowned from their canvas overhead. Made from charter oak, he said. 
I gazed upon it with inexpressible solicitude. He showed me another carved chair in the house. Charter Oak, he said. I gazed again with interest. Then we looked at the rusty, stained, and famous old charter, and presently I turned to move away, but he solemnly drew me back and pointed to the frame. Charter Oak, said he. I worshipped. We went down to Wadsworth's Athenaeum, and I wanted to look at the pictures, but he conveyed me silently to a corner and pointed to a log, rudely shaped somewhat like a chair, and whispered, Chada Oak. I exhibited the accustomed reverence. He showed me a walking stick, a needle case, a dog collar, a three-legged stool, a boot jack, a dinner table, a ten-pin alley, a toothpick. Uh, I interrupted him and said, Never mind, we'll bunch the whole lumber year and call it Chada Oak, he said. Well, I said, now let us go and see some Charter Oak for a change. I meant that for a joke, but how was he to know that being a stranger? He took me around and showed me Charter Oak enough to build a plank road from here to Great Salt Lake City. Thanks, Mark Twain. But next, after a short break, Jack brings us a few blocks away from the museum in Hartford to show us some actual living descendants of the Charter Oak in a city park. You're listening to This Old Tree. So Jack, where are we now? We're in Bushnell Park in downtown Hartford, the oldest municipally sponsored park in the United States. Really? Yep. And why are we here? Uh, It's got a couple of scions of the Charter Oak. We're really? standing in front of one of them. It's called the Hoadley Oak. This is the Hoadley Oak that we're standing right next to? Yeah. Uh, it's it, the, the gate we just came through is the Hoadley Gate. Uh-huh. And it's, uh, it's a memorial to... Now, was the, was the park built around this tree? Or was no. this tree planted after the park was put in? Uh, so this park was built in 1857 um, so I don't know how long after that uh, this this oak was planted but uh, there it is any idea how they took cuttings or acorns or how did they propagate the descendants of the charter oak I know some of it is done with acorns uh, but there may also be some done with cuttings so they could have. There might be. Might have been a nursery that was growing them nearby, and they planted this from the nursery. Or just an interested person who decided to propagate yeah. the tree. Bad timing. A tree crew was nearby, and the sound of chainsaws disrupted some of our conversation. The leaves of this white oak are still hanging on the tree. They're persistent. So yeah, clearly, they, it's they a white oak. Yep. Pretty. Pretty standard. I'd say it's about 32 inches in diameter. 
Oh, I'm going to guess. I should have brought my D-tape with me. <laughs> we just had the big storm, uh, apparently the big one of the storms of the century a few days ago, so they're still cleaning up, and I can see a lot of branches on the ground, but it doesn't look as though this particular oak, this white oak, has suffered much damage. Well, it's got some dead wood in it, but uh, it, it seems to be in pretty good shape. Where are you taking us to next? We're going to take you to the big one. Next, Jack brought us to an even bigger descendant of the charter oak, a 50-inch diameter white oak that didn't have a name. It was in perfect condition and well cared for. Jack told us about a tree map of all the known scions, which is available online from a website called Connecticut's Notable Trees, which is sponsored by the Connecticut Botanical Society, the Connecticut College Arboretum, and the Connecticut Urban Forest Council. We then got into a discussion about how these descendants were propagated. I guessed acorns germinated at a nursery and grown into saplings, but Gene met with Christopher Martin from the state's Department of Energy and Environmental Protection to get his perspective. So first, let's start out by you just just tell me, um, just for the record, your name, your title, and what you do. Sure. So I'm, so my, I'm Chris Martin. I'm the state forester for Connecticut. Um, that's a dual role. I'm also the director of the forestry division uh, within our Bureau of Natural Resources. And so we cover, um, uh, the Bureau covers the fish and wildlife of Connecticut, the marine fisheries, and then within different divisions. And then there's a division of forestry that um, we really focus on the trees and forests of Connecticut and uh, the different ownerships, the private lands, the water company lands, the state lands. Um, we do smoky bear and forest protection and firefighting, and then urban forestry work also. Okay. Are you a, a longtime Connecticut person? I was born in southwestern Connecticut. Yep. Grew up in Beacon Falls, New Haven County. Okay. So so let's just d- dive right in. Um, when you were growing up, did you know about the story of the Charter Oak? Um, I, I didn't, I, I mean, I knew the, the nickname for Connecticut was the Charter Oak State or was a state tree. Uh-huh. Um, I was heavily involved in Boy Scouts, so I've always enjoyed the outdoors and camping. And so hearing about the Charter Oak on and off, um, yeah, I acknowledged it, but I didn't really understand it. And of course, in my position, I've become more familiar with it, but, uh, you know, it was, a, it was, uh, the original charter oak was this huge monster white oak tree well over 400 years and this is like colonial times right uh when we first the europeans first came over um and it was the indigenous populations uh recognized this tree that overlooked the connecticut river uh really in an outstanding location as kind of an area of of gathering and um and the indigenous folks, you know, approached a new landowner. It was sold. Um, the property was sold with the tree. And they uh, pleaded with the landowner not to cut it down, let it grow. It's really important to them. And he agreed to that. So um, let's just jump ahead then in terms of passing along this stories and the importance of the seedlings and the acorns. What I've heard is that the acorns were gathered at the time the storm blew the tree down. Do, do you think, is that what happened? And who gathered them? Was it Samuel Colt or, you know, how did that happen? Yeah. So the, I've heard the same that acorns were gathered. The, um, the acorns themselves were distributed. The one 
that we are the most assured is a descendant in Bushnell Park in Hartford, a descendant of the Charter Oak. And so over time, when uh, the agency, the state of Connecticut wanted to propagate more Charter Oak trees, they would collect the acorns from underneath this one tree in Bushnell Park. So that is the tree we visited the other day. They have a plaque underneath that says the scion, right? And so that tree was planted. Let me look at my note. I, I don't have it down, but it was, you know, that tree was planted in 1868 or something like yeah. that, I think, right? So it's right around when it fell. Right. So the other scions are from the acorns from that particular oak. The um, the trees that the state of Connecticut distributed in the 60s and the 70s were from that oak in Bushnell Park. Okay, okay. And was there something that happened in the 60s or 70s that precipitated that interest in distributing the seedlings? I know, I'm not sure about the 60s. The 70s, it was 1976. It was kind of a bicentennial, part of our bicentennial, national bicentennial celebration. Uh-huh. And so there was a concerted effort to, to give you know as, as many people as wanted, the towns that wanted a descendant of the Charter Oak tree. And were those acorns distributed or is there a nursery in Connecticut, like a state nursery where the they were uh, where the seedlings were propagated? There at the time, there were a couple of different nurseries, um, one in Griswold and then the Windsor area that the, sat, the, the acorns were planted and germinated and cared for into a small sapling stage. Uh-huh. Um, they know those those facilities no longer serve that purpose, but good to know. I wonder what they did way back when when they first propagated those trees from from the first acorn crop from the from the original tree. No yeah, they probably either. just stuck them in the soil and put a fence around to keep <laughs> the deer or other animals from eating them. So <laughs> yeah, right, and grew a few trees. Gene spoke to several people around the state about the Charter Oak, including Alan Fenner, a consulting arborist. He had a story about a piece of the Charter Oak showing up after one of his jobs. So now tell me the story about the Charter Oak, the piece of the oak that you said your client gave to you. How did that come about? Uh, well, I was doing a, a uh, uh, kind of a tree-related job for a client uh, after storm sandy you know it, it was someone who had called me uh and she was she couldn't get a hold of anyone to do any kind of work and there was you know, portions of trees all down on, on her property and um so i came out there to help and take care of her i my two sons and i went out there and, and we took care of the property and uh after we were finished she she presented me with a piece of oak and said it was given the woman was about 80 years old and she said it was given to her by her grandfather uh and and it was uh uh, supposedly related to or a portion of the tree of the charter oak and it was a small you know about three inch by two inch thick um, piece of definitely oak uh definitely white oak Right now, I have it on my desk, and it uh, serves the purpose of holding down paper very well. <laughs> As it should. Okay. Rob Storm also had his own story about a piece of the Charter Oak. You mentioned that there was a relic of the Charter Oak in your family. There was. Uh, probably my three greats grandfather obtained a large, round section, thick, 
from, I would guess, not the not the trunk itself, but one of the lower branches. And that was proudly displayed in the front parlor of, of my mother's family home, which uh, had been in the family for generations in Vernon Center. Unfortunately, my mother's parents fell on hard times with the Depression, so they opened what they called the Early Dawn Inn, a big, rambling, old colonial, late colonial farmhouse um, with only two children. So there were plenty of rooms to let out to tourists, especially during the leaf-peeping period, the, the autumn, which, as you know, is gorgeous here in New England. Well, absolutely. Unfortunately, one morning after the guests had left, they found that so it, that, that that this big round section had left also. Very sad. Uh, and it's still bemoaned when members of the family get together. So do, so do you find, though, am I the first person that's approached you about this story recently, or do you get any other interest in it? Periodically, there's an interest. The Hartford Current uh, ran an interest story on it a few years ago. Um, it's really, you know, it's when you talk about Connecticut's history or anyone that wants to delve into Connecticut's history and write an article about Connecticut, you, it's hard to skip the importance of the Charter Oak and how it's kind of like our signature to many folks. Mm -hmm. um, when they think of Connecticut, they think of the nutmeg state, the Constitution state, and oh, yeah, that famous Charter Oak. So it kind of goes hand in hand when you're reflecting back on Connecticut's history. So as a forester, What's your feeling about the white oak? Is that is that a tree that you like particularly, or is it significant that this was a white oak? So that's a great question. And I have a lot of admiration for white oak trees. They are strong, um, sturdy, long-lived. Um, they can grow in a variety of habitats. Um, the, the, they can be used for a variety of purposes. They, the mast the acorns themselves are incredibly valuable for wildlife, a variety of wildlife species, and even insects and butterflies. You know, these are areas that we're managing the forest for wildlife habitat or, or we're cleaning up after a storm and we really hate to waste wood. And so we'll turn it into a usable, durable product. Near the completion of this story, Jean and I received some difficult news from Jack. The Holdly Oak, the descendant of the Charter Oak, which the three of us visited, is one of five trees in Bushnell Park that were subject to extensive analysis because they appeared to be declining. The result of the study is that this historic oak is now scheduled for removal because it was determined to be high risk, essentially due to a column of decay deep within its trunk. The assessment was conducted by an outside consultant but the removal decision has been challenged by citizens and there will be an upcoming hearing that is yet to be scheduled. Back to our guests, we asked each of them to tell us why they thought the legend of the Charter Oak is important. And I believe the reason is, you know, trees can tie us to our past and make us remember more vividly or get a picture in our mind of, you know, what actually happened. Um, and I think it's a great way to teach uh, younger uh, kids about history, you know, and um, the fact that, you know, it's a tree that they can easily relate to? Well, I think it's appropriate um, that the charter oak being the, the a white oak, and then the official state tree of Connecticut is the white oak, Quercus alba. 
And um, I, just, I think it reflects well on Connecticut citizenry and our governance and where we are in the world. It's a nice reflection. And so it's, it's, it's um, I don't know, it's, just, it's a good fit for Connecticut. I think it's more symbolic than anything. A legendary wood, sturdy, long-lasting. The mighty oaks of England are, are legendary. So it's the hardiness, the solidity of oak that, that means a great deal. The beauty of this particular tree was unusual too. It hadn't the form of a typical oak tree. You've seen, of course, the paintings. Uh, and in 1935, it appeared on the tercentenary stamp for the, uh, for the existence of the colony. It was the emblem of the colony. But in addition, it had that reputation of being a, a sign of peace, an emblem of peace, as well as solidity. And on its high hill, overlooking the capital city of Connecticut, it had almost the quality of a guardian of the entire population of the state. So it was looked upon almost as a, a non-human ancestor, I think, for all of us who live here in Connecticut. Well, Gene, I'd say if the legend of the Charter Oak has survived in Connecticut for 340 years, it ain't going anywhere. I'd say so. I really noticed that people would light up whenever we asked them about it and they would talk about it. Yeah, that seems true of everybody that we spoke with. Even if the whole Lee Oak is lost, I think this legend will live on. Right. And it makes you ask, though about the meaning of a hollow and a tree. You know, it used to be something of such value and something so important was hidden in it. And now we're actually kind of risk averse and we're worried that a tree with a cavity is somehow dangerous. Times sure have changed. Yeah, there's an irony in that this story wouldn't have existed without the hollow in the Charter Oak. Absolutely. What do you find most remarkable about this story? Well, to me, one thing that's amazing is just that a tree is still cherished by so many folks. And in our highly advanced techie society, that a tree, something so natural, is still recognized as being really important. Well, we met some wonderful people, didn't we? We did. Thank you so much for researching and investigating this story with me. Um, it's been a great pleasure. It's been fun working with you, Doug. You've been listening to This Old Tree, and I'm Doug Still. Thanks again to Gene Zimmerman, Robert Storm, Jack Hale, Chris Martin, and Alan Fenner for appearing on the show today. You all really helped bring this story alive. Thanks to Rob Barnard for a fantastic Mark Twain. And thank you, tree lovers, for listening. Visit Facebook, Instagram, or the website thisoldtree.show for more guest information, show notes, and photos. I'll see you next time.